You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, we are live at the port of L.A. after fiery comments from President Biden on soaring inflation and what he calls the exploitation of oil companies that's spiking gas prices. Plus, developing news out of Tesla, the company is asking shareholders to authorize a three-for-one stock split, and there's a surprising departure from the board of directors. Plus, a culture clash at Disney drives the TV chief out. We're going to talk about the future of the entertainment giant under CEO Bob Chapek. I want to get back to those inflation numbers now. President Biden paying a visit to the port of Los Angeles and talking about surging prices as inflation hits a 40-year high, including some of the biggest jumps ever in gas prices. The president going after Exxon, which has seen not only record profits, but also a record rise in its share price. Take a listen to what the president had to say. Exxon made more money than God this year. And by the way, nothing's changed. And they're not, by the way, one thing I want to say about the oil companies, they talk about how we have, they have 9,000 permits to drill. They're not drilling. Why aren't they drilling? Because they make more money not producing more oil. Joining us now from the port of L.A., Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. So, Ed, walk us through the president's message. He got pretty heated at times. He did, and it was interesting. He started on here, Port of Los Angeles, the work they've done, the coordination between the different tentacles of the port system, the truckers, the operators, the shipping companies. But he also talked a lot about the broader problem around supply chains, which includes impact from the war in Ukraine. He didn't just have kind of ire for the oil companies, where he basically wants oil production to increase so prices come down. But he also talked about foreign shipping companies. And the reason he did is that a big driver of inflation has been the rate that retailers in this country, Walmart's targets, Amazon's pay to move goods from A to B. And he essentially said those rates are unpalatably high. He called on Congress to do something to bring them down. But, you know, we track this data at Bloomberg. Of course I do. On my Bloomberg terminal, I see that (laughs) since September, shipping rates have come down 27%. So he kind of did this rapid spray look at what's happening. The underlying message, though, things here have improved then. 
So let's talk about the role of technology here. Obviously, tech companies have been acutely impacted by the supply chain delays. What does this all mean for tech? So it, we're on a tech show. You and I talk about the cutting edge of, say, drones and, and artificial intelligence, etc. But in this case, it's the lack of technology. It's a very manual process. A container gets lifted off a ship by a crane, put down on the back bottom of a, a truck cab, and then driven off to its destination, or it gets moved onto a rail. The message I'm hearing over and over from executives and officials is rail is letting us down because they have cranes that take the containers off ships directly onto rail lines, but there are no rail carts to meet them, so they just pile up and are left idly. A positive, it's Friday, let's end on a positive. I think the port system, the executives I spoke to throughout the day are really happy about the administration getting out their checkbook, putting money into the port system to the tunes of billions of dollars to modernize so that we can get more automation. We can have software systems that get all of these folks talking to one another. And so we prevent what we saw in the last 18 months from happening again. Ed Ludlow, thanks. We're going to see you a bit later in the show when we talk about uh, the president's push for electric cars and the role Tesla plays in all of that. I want to continue this conversation on inflation and the broader market implications and bring in Tim Sullivan, the CEO of Oceanic. Tim, thank you so much. What do you make of the, the notes that the president struck today? Um, I think there's, you know, a lot more to inflation that includes monetary policy and uh, demand pull and, and cost push. I think the manufactured demand by, you know, sprinkling $5 trillion out of the economy over COVID uh, created, you know, kind of a virtual demand. Um, supply, in fact, diminished. Some of the things that were shut down during COVID haven't haven't restarted and and may never restart. So, diminished supply and and manufactured demand that's now decreasing. The combination is is leading to inflation that's kind of a, a, at a runaway pace right now. Obviously, the Fed's got a lot to do. So, are you saying that the president shouldn't just be blaming Exxon? There are other factors at play. Uh, there's definitely other factors at play, and as far as Exxon goes, or any of the oil companies for that matter, um, investments in in energy over the last eight to ten years have have not been what they should have been. Um, money has been kind of transitioned over to green projects and other things, and at this time, when there's a war in Russia and we're basically reduced by three million barrels a day, the OPEC increase that's coming in July, 450,000 barrels a day is a drop in the bucket, and, and we're going to obviously feel that as a country. So how long do you think this inflation and this general market funk is going to be with us? I mean, that's one of the toughest questions, I think, out there. I, I personally see my market, which is the private markets, uh, existing at least you know through the end of the year, it, it being a tumultuous choppy at best and and recovery hopefully starting sometime mid next year so let's talk about what it's going to take you know otherwise to get inflation under control are there other things that the administration in your view could and should be doing to alleviate the pressure on consumers uh that's a that's a tough one i think you know they're using every tool that they can to moderate inflation and you know using tightening and and trying to manage um the the workforce and employment numbers things like that so it, it's you know, it's become a bit of a whipsaw right now, and, and inflation numbers are obviously getting pretty tough. I see milk at the grocery store, $10 a gallon here in California, and gas at, at over $7. Um, it's it's going to be tough for a lot of people. And I, I don't think there's a, an instant panacea that the government has that they can employ. You're also a venture capitalist, and I'm curious what the impact is that you're seeing on the private markets. Obviously, we see what's happening in the public markets. We're hearing that companies are, you know, you know 
having trouble raising money, doing um, down rounds, slashing their valuations, layoffs, hiring freezes. You know, what do you think the fallout from this period of time is going to be on all of these private companies that were, you know, living high on the hog for a while there? Yeah, I mean, I've seen this in, in 2000 and 2008, and uh, it's it, to me, it's kind of like uh, one of these California fires that we have. It, it's horrible and horrendous and, and terrifying, um, and a lot of companies will, will be absorbed and other companies will just disappear. Um, but at the end, typically a, a situation like this creates a, a lot of new growth, and in the private markets, we are really, the public markets are a leading indicator for the private markets. So a lot of the private company valuations are, are pegged off of, uh, you know, public company valuations on, on future value. And if the public company valuations decrease significantly, the, the future value of those few private companies that are buying to be number one, and in some cases there's you know, only two or three market leaders in the private company space, they are all going to take a huge hit. And so, like you said, we are seeing... Um, difficulty, challenges with financing, terms that are changing, liquidation preferences that are increasing, you know, from one to two to three to who knows what. Um, and, and of course, to manage cash flow, people are going to get laid off and it's, it's going to be, it is going to be a rough road for, for everyone. Tough indeed. Tim Sullivan, CEO of Oceanic, thank you for giving us your view there on what we're dealing with. Thank you. Well, Tesla shares are up in late trading as it plans for a three-for-one stock split. The EV maker joining other tech companies with lofty share prices that have taken similar steps to make ownership more accessible to individual investors. Tesla also announcing Oracle founder Larry Ellison will step down from the Tesla board. We'll have more on this developing story later this hour. Stopping counterfeit luxury goods, StockX has taken a leading role in this and has new data out on the rise of counterfeit items that are flooding the market. Joining me now, StockX CEO Scott Cutler. Scott, great to have you back with us. So just how many more of these things are flooding the market now? Well, just taking a step back, if you look at the trends for consumers, consumers are inspired by what they see with brands and and brands are going more directly to consumer but they're also releasing product their best product in scarce quantities and sometimes it's very difficult to get and so consumers are going to marketplaces to actually get product that they can't get in other channels so stockx has been at the forefront of being a marketplace that connects buyers and sellers and we've authenticated over 35 million products that have gone through our rigorous authentication process. And it's a service that we provide to our customers to essentially ensure that they're getting access to great product from brands that authenticated. So what kind of fake stuff are you seeing more of? Well, if you look at the last 12 months alone, We have protected customers by rejecting over 300,000 products worth more than $100 million. Those products range from sneakers to uh, apparel, accessories, handbags, uh, across a broad category of, of goods that today consumers are defining as a next generation asset class. But when we reject an item for being inauthentic, what's interesting when you peel back the report that we put out this week, you'll realize that the most 
common reason for us rejecting something is a manufacturing defect. It could be a glue stitching. It could be the, the way that product was manufactured, damaged box, used product, and then fake product. So essentially, we're looking at that end-to-end -end experience and want to be able to deliver for that customer as you know, a, a legitimate brand experience that they, quite frankly, expect from us. So obviously we know what StockX does to keep these kind of things off the market. Is there something more broadly that you think should be happening to prevent these black markets, if you will, from flourishing? Well, if you look at where the consumer is today, as I said, going to, to places where they can't find product. And so they're going to other marketplaces that range from social networks to peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces. And the challenge with these marketplaces is that there's a lack of quality. Uh, there's no certification around um, authenticity. And typically, it's a bad user experience. And so when we started, we created the highest standard among the industry for marketplaces and, quite frankly, revolutionized a process to authenticate every single product that's sold on our platform before it gets to the consumer. And so I think the challenge, and quite frankly, I think the challenge to marketplaces is to stand up for your consumer, authenticate that product, and stand by the product that's being sold on your platform and take responsibility as a platform, which is what we do every single day. Now, you've been in the midst of this ongoing legal battle with Nike. Nike sued you over an NFT series based on Nike shoes and then more recently accused SockX of selling counterfeits. You know, what's your response to this response to this latest salvo? So from a from a legal perspective, we believe the original case has no merit. The additional amendment equally has no merit. We have the right to use any brand's name and trademarks when selling products, and that's well established under current law. I think as it relates to the experience, and that's the experience in the most recent, uh, recent claims, is just backed up by the facts that we authenticate 100% of the products that are sold on our platform. And I think we have a really symbiotic relationship with great brands that are releasing great product because StockX, you can see every single day, what is this great product worth and what could it be traded for? And we provide an economic opportunity for those sellers that hold on to those assets and then sell them to uh, buyers, but we stand in the middle of that transaction to authenticate every single one. And so, uh, you know, to claim that we're not doing that is, is patently false, but most importantly for us, it's really about ensuring that user experience. So if that's the case, what went wrong with the relationship with Nike? Because I assume you have to maintain strong relationships with a lot of brands. Well, if you, if you look at the platform itself, we're actually an intermediary between sellers and buyers. Those sellers are typically consumers. Um, we do have relationships with brands that actually release product and sell product, but a vast majority of what transacts on the platform is not coming from a brand directly, but it's coming from consumers that get access to that product over time. You know, we have partnered in so many different ways uh, with the in industry on, on counterfeits. In fact, um, even Nike itself have come to us to say, we think you're among the highest standards uh, in the marketplace, partner with us, with the Department of Homeland Security, um, on other councils participating in, in preventing counterfeits from getting to the market. And so I think we okay. work in partnership with the industry and hold ourselves to those standards. 
Now, you spend a lot of time at the New York Stock Exchange, and I'm curious what unique perspective that gives you on the market turmoil that we're seeing now. And you specifically oversaw listings. You know, you know, do you think this IPO window is shut? And what does that mean for StockX, which we were expecting to go public potentially soon? Well, you know, everybody is watching the headlines in the markets today. What I would say is for the market overall, today's headlines are rarely tomorrow's history. So we will get through this time. Um, it's a, certainly a very difficult time for the consumer. Um, for us specifically, I can't comment on rumors or specula speculation about us, but we are 100% focused on executing our business, growing our business during these challenging times, and expanding into other exciting categories and areas to attract this next generation of consumer to our platform. StockX also sells collectibles like trading cars, figurines. You know, talk to us about your plans for non-shoe alternative assets and the kind of demand you see from Gen Z and millennials, especially in the midst of a downturn. Well, in 2016, we started with, as, with this idea of creating a real-time marketplace for high-demand consumer goods. We started with sneakers. Our second category actually was in watches and then handbags. And then we got into apparel, and that's expanded now into collectibles. It's all part of a big trend that I think includes digital assets, includes some of these physical assets, where the next generation consumer, Gen Z, Gen A, actually looking at different things besides oil and commodities and even the market itself as a place to invest their time, their energy, their passions. And now you have opportunities to actually turn that passion into an economic opportunity. And so it's a big trend across all the things that trade into our platform that these are considered assets by this set of consumers. All right. Scott Cutler, CEO of StockX. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Scott, for stopping by. Coming up, another stock split in the tech sector. This time it's Tesla. Why the EV maker is eyeing a three-for-one split. Up next, this is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, 
to news on Tesla that broke just after the U.S. market closed. The EV company is saying in a proxy statement it is asking shareholders to vote on a three-for-one stock split. Joining us now on the phone for more Bloomberg Data Hull, who covers Tesla for us. So it worked for Alphabet. It worked for Amazon, giving the stocks a bit of a jump when they did their own stock splits. Why is Tesla doing this, Dana? Well, Tesla did a stock split a couple of years ago that was wildly popular with retail investors because, you know, fans of the company love the company, love the stock, but as the stock price rises, it's harder for them to get an entry point. And so Tesla wants to do this not just for retail shareholders, but also for its own employees. I mean, they give stock options to employees, and it's a big part of the compensation. And, um, you know, I think the last stock split was just wildly popular, and there's no reason not to do it again. Meantime, Tesla also announcing that Larry Ellison is stepping down from the board, which is interesting given that Larry is one of the big backers of Elon's deal to buy Twitter. What do you make of this? Yeah, that was a surprise. Larry has been on the board since late 2018. He is considered an independent director. Um, he just is not standing for re-election, so his charm is up and he's not going to you know, be, be re-elected. The board is going to shrink from eight members to seven Um you know, I don't know what is behind that. Um, I mean, we know that Mr. Ellison spends a lot of his time in Lanai, Hawaii. Maybe he just didn't have time to come to all the board meetings or wants to do other things. But he has been a pretty instrumental player on the board and, yeah, obviously is backing Elon's bid to buy Twitter. So I'm not entirely sure what, what, what went on there. We were just covering Bloomberg's big take focused on Larry Ellison and Lanai. How does this change the constitution of the Tesla board in the meantime? Uh, well, Larry's departure just means that the board shrinks, and um, and so you know, seven people is pretty small for a company of Tesla's size. I mean, most boards are going in the opposite direction, adding members, adding more diversity. Tesla is kind of you know shrinking its numbers, even though it's become this massive company. All right. Uh, well, we'll continue to follow your reporting on this. Dana Hall of Bloomberg News, who covers Tesla for us. Thank you, Dana, for that update. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This week, the Biden administration announced new steps to build out the first ever national network of 500,000 electric car chargers along U.S. highways and in select neighborhoods. This is a key piece of the bipartisan infrastructure law. Let's get back to Ed Ludlow joining us now from L.A., where President Biden spoke just a few hours ago. So, Ed, talk to us about these new charging stations and just how much this could supercharge electric car ownership. This is a case of build it and they will come, right? Biden's administration laid out $7.5 billion for charging infrastructure, and they were very specific in the wording of the rules. They basically want an America where the standards are the same. It doesn't matter if you drive yourself a Tesla, a Ford Mustang Marquis, a Nissan Leaf, that you should dependably be able to drive up to the nearest service station, plug in your EV, and off you go. There's been skepticism that this money material materializes in the numbers promised. There's been skepticism that it will be built in time. But there are also a number of private sector players, right? You have Electrify America, ChargePoint, and they have all gone about, along with Tesla, building out these networks relatively quickly. The discussion around adoption is still a debate because the pre-order numbers for the F-150 Lightning, for example, or a Rivian, or even the backlog that you see in Tesla shows that there's demand here in the United States. But the backward-looking data speaks for itself. 
Basically, EV adoption is just a few percentage points of all new car sales. In China, it's almost 20%. So that's why I say it's a question of build it and will, and will they come? That's what the Biden administration hopes, that making this infrastructure more commonplace will make EV adoption more commonplace as well, Em. Now, something really curious, Ed, we've seen a rift grow between President Biden and Elon Musk, who you would think is a natural ally in this administration and in this push to electric cars. We've seen barbs from both, you know, in, in you know, uh, towards each other. Why is this? Why haven't they been able to form some sort of alliance? You know, I remember very vividly when I sat in L.A. at Code Conference or Rico Conference and Elon Musk sat in the chair and said that President Biden is leading the Russian, quote, Russian revolution in electric vehicles. We've known since early in the year that Elon Musk and the president don't have a direct relationship. We know that when President Biden talks about the electrification movement, he is kind of primarily name check Ford and GM's leadership in that. Despite Tesla dominating the sale of electric vehicles in this country and globally, frankly. But there's the other side of the story as well. Elon Musk uh, has an unusual way of doing things. Tesla is not a union shop. It does not have unionized labor. Biden is the president of the labor movement. He's very open about that. And now we see this shift where Elon Musk has shifted his politics. The thing is, Elon Musk is the world's richest man, and he himself is incredibly popular. And we won't be able to quantify it, but it'll be interesting as we approach November in the midterms. Does Elon Musk take some voters away from Biden? That's a question I'm going to be asking. Fascinating, fascinating question. All right, Ed Ludlow, thank you from the port of L.A. I appreciate your reporting. Meantime, we continue to celebrate Pride this month of June. Bloomberg Television is focusing on a wide range of topics highlighting what equality means for the economy, companies, and investors. Today, we're speaking with neuroscientist and entrepreneur Dr. Vivian Ming, who founded Socos Labs, which uses AI-driven research to address inclusion and gender in business. Dr. Ming, thank you so much for joining us. You and I first met when I was researching my book, Brotopia, and I'm so fascinated by your very unique perspective in this industry. Let's start with AI. How can AI or AI-driven research, as you say, address some of these really deep-seated problems? Well, let's be honest what I believe. Uh, we, humans, could potentially solve these problems. But AI is an incredibly powerful tool. I once had the opportunity to scratch an itch. Uh, what drives wage gap? And we built, uh, and I say we, I, built an AI that went out, analyzed websites of 60,000 different companies, looked at their quarterly reports, analyzed the photos of the board and the leadership team, and we found the single biggest uh, predictor of wage gap within a company all around the world was the number of male faces uh, in those pictures. Uh, the more women, the lower the wage gap. Uh, a pretty unique finding it took one day, and as it turns out, one person. In that sense, AI can be an incredibly powerful tool to explore questions of inclusion, um, although there are some pretty notorious stories of it going in the wrong direction. Tell us a little bit about your personal story and you know this perspective you have, unlike many other people, about how people in Silicon Valley, for example, are treated differently. 
Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing. When I started my first uh, tech company, it was an ed tech company. This was before Coursera and Khan Academy, and we're going out, my wife and I, together to try and raise money. And I remember this one case. In fact, it was the first time we had an entire uh, partner vote from a venture capital firm on us. And this one guy happened to be the oldest guy in the room. Uh, no tough questions, no questions at all. He literally just patted me on the head as I left the room and said, you should be so proud of what you built. And then he ended up being the one person who voted against funding. Uh, and, you know, maybe this is an experience that could happen to anyone. It wasn't just that I was a woman or just that uh, I was a married woman uh, that were the founders, except this wasn't actually my first company. My first company was years before a film company, and I was a man. And in the decade in between, I had gone through transition. And let me tell you, it was extraordinarily more difficult raising money as a woman, despite the fact that in the intervening years, I'd gained a couple of PhDs. Uh, in the years since that, I founded six companies, uh, had uh, five of them acquired. I, we had a good business plan. I truly believe what we were trying to build but people couldn't see it. And I will tell you that uh, if you've ever wondered whether it's truly different for men and women, for gay and straight, black and white, as someone that's seen both sides, yes, uh, Silicon Valley can be a wildly different town. As someone who's seen both sides and ha perhaps has one of the most decorated resumes of anyone in Silicon Valley, how much progress do you think has actually been made over the years, of course, we had um, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. Then we had the pandemic and concerns about backsliding in the pandemic. Do you feel like we've made significant steps forward or, 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 or not? Yeah, you know, I'm a hard number scientist in the end, and so I like to collect data. Uh, one of the projects we run at Socos Labs is called the Inclusion Impact Index. We collaborate with Crunchbase, uh, PitchBook, the U.S. Uh, Patent Bureau and the Census collecting data, and we look at questions like, do uh, LGBT founders um, raise as much uh, as straight founders? How many jobs are created by uh, women starting companies in the Southeast? And what we clearly saw, for example, during the pandemic is funding of non-traditional founders. Read uh, women, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, LGBTQ, went down substantially. Um, some of that is because many of them were starting companies for the first time and funding for new companies dropped with the uncertainty. But uh, the drop for someone like me was pronouncedly larger. Uh, so there's clearly some backsliding going on. Uh, and that kind of uh, data is incredibly useful because I'll tell you, I have never talked with a VC that wasn't convinced they were the most rational person in the entire world. We are moving into an even more tech-enabled world, you know, this future of the metaverse, who knows if it happens, but, you know, a number of companies are certainly trying to push us in that direction. Do you see this posing or presenting more challenges or opportunities when it comes to creating a more equal world? Uh, you know, let's be blunt, it's both. 
we look at some new research on the rate of data flow, how incredibly connected we are, how easy it is with my phone or online for to collect any piece of information I want to get. And paradoxically, it's actually slowing down innovation. And so in that hmm. sense, uh, independent of diversity, technology seems to make us explore less. And that's deeply problematic. But we can fight against that. And we can really lean into technology. For example, technology I built for my son who has autism to help him understand uh, people that don't have autism without curing him. He's already got a superpower. He sees the world different than everyone around him. He just needs a little help in understanding other people. That's where technology can make a difference by actually celebrating what makes us different and even augmenting it, not just making us all sort of boringly the same. So what do you see is next here in this discussion, in this conversation? I know there are, there are so many things that we don't talk about, that don't, you know, we don't shed enough light on. What should we be talking about? Well, I got to tell you, as was mentioned in some of your earlier interviews, uh, it's a changed world uh, in California. There are requirements about board representation. I have never gotten so many board inquiries. I mean, honestly, a transgender woman with a multiracial disabled family Everybody is calling me up and asking if I'll join their board. Um, but uh, I think it's performative. What we really need to do is see that there is value, uh, inarguable value, in having people that think differently about problems. Gender, race, uh, sexuality are certainly not the only ways in the world people think differently, but they are powerful ones. So for the last year or two, we've actually been looking at this fascinating space, the neuroscience of trust, why it is that our brains process different people differently. And we just need to accept in the end that we're human and we're imperfect. And sometimes it's gonna take extra effort to connect with someone that's different. Uh, where our brains are just not set up to handle it. Hmm. Dr. Vivian Ming, you sharing your perspective with us today is, is truly a gift. Thank you. Time now for our crypto report, and I want to talk about securing blockchain. Joining me now, Nico Sandrico Janopoulos. He is the CEO of Matrica, which provides monitoring and analytics for blockchain communities. Hi, Nico. Thank you so much for joining us. So, talk to us about the problems that you're trying to solve with your company. So, um, Metrica is trying to make blockchain networks reliable and performant so that the Web3 world can be built on top. So, think of it, um, we've got used to the resiliency and the performance of telecommunication networks. We are applying and we're building the same tools in the blockchain world. And that is very important because if we want to build applications for Web3, applications that are require, have higher operational requirements, think of it like the next Zoom, the next Facebook, the next Netflix on top of Web3, we need the blockchain networks to be performing really well. So we, we are building the tools, end-to-end -to -end monitoring, uh, analytics, operational intelligence, uh, so that anyone who runs infrastructure can run it reliably, and also the applications can get that visibility and can know how the network performs, the blockchain network perform underneath. Are network outages and attacks on the blockchain more serious than they would be on other networks? I think they are. I think the, uh, the assets that exist on the blockchain networks 
are much more valuable than video or voice that exists on conventional telecom networks or the internet. And I think um, it, we're putting our banking system, we're putting new assets, we're putting digital assets on those networks. So I think both security and performance are much more important than what it were in the, in the telecom world. And um, uh, I think we're going to see the highest value bits traversing the world uh, than we saw before in the Web2 world, in the internet. So talk to us then about how this scales in the future if, you know, these kinds of outages and attacks are more serious for blockchain technology. Yeah, um, I mean, just to give you an example of what happens today, when there is, uh, when there is an outage, um, everyone runs a node on the blockchain network and they run some kind of local monitoring on those nodes. And what happens is that everybody sees that their node is down and they try to figure out, is it the node? Is it the network? Is it the application that is wrong? Nobody knows what is going on exactly. So everybody goes on social media, they go on Twitter, they go on Discord, and they start asking each other, are you seeing the same thing? Are you experiencing the same things that we see? And then there is a long process of coordination for bringing a network back in order. So these are operations in the early days that we're experiencing now. We need infrastructure like the one that uh, Metrica is building so that we can have monitoring, community monitoring, end-to-end -end visibility into the network. And so that those outages can either be prevented or when they happen, we can very quickly recover and the network can be, uh, can be back. So I think we are seeing things that as we build up infrastructure and as we build more tools in the space, will start becoming less and less frequent. We've been talking a lot about the market turmoil and crypto market turmoil. Bitcoin still now below $30,000. What's your read on where this is all headed? I think definitely the markets um, are in uh, turmoil and we're, we're, in a, uh, we're getting into a bear market. But I think for, for crypto, this actually might be a, a good thing in the sense that people will focus a lot on building. And every time that we've seen in the past uh, during bear markets, there is a lot of infrastructure being built. The foundations of blockchain and crypto are being built and uh, move even uh, further along. I would say investors also kind of change their appetite and they become much more focused on the value of what is being built rather than on financial engineering or on crypto economics. And I think that's that's a healthy uh, kind of phase that, that we go through. And we've seen that in the past. It has never stopped the progress in building up more, more things in the crypto world. All right, Mitrika CEO, Nikos Andrikogenopoulos, thank you for joining us. Coming up, a clash of styles over at Disney led to veteran Peter Rice's dismissal, and it took CEO Bob Chapek just seven minutes. We'll talk about what happened next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice 
or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. has one of the longer resumes in the entertainment industry, but when his time at Disney came to an end, it was over in seven minutes. That is how long it took Disney CEO Bob Chapek to fire the head of his TV division this week in what insiders say was a clash of styles at the world's largest entertainment company. Bloomberg's Chris Palmieri joins us now to discuss. So, Chris, what happened, and why did it only take seven minutes? <laughs> well, this is one of those things where we'll look back at this as a data point, and if uh, the, you know, the tenure of Bob Chapek as CEO is ultimately a successful one, we'll say, well, there's a guy who made uh, quick decisions and uh, you know, wasn't afraid to make hard choices. Uh, if, if ultimately he's not successful, and, you know, and it could go either way at this point, uh, people will say, oh, you know, uh, boy, there's a guy who had really no people skills and uh, you know, didn't behave the way Hollywood normally behaves when it terminates uh, very senior executives like Peter Rice. JPEG has obviously been facing some pretty tough and kind of public battles. What does this say about his leadership at this point? Well, in a way, bigger news this week uh, than Peter Rice was the fact that the Disney's board of directors put out a statement on Thursday saying that uh, JPEG and his team have, its, have their full support. Uh, and that's significant because this guy has definitely been under fire. The stock's down by more than a third this year alone. Uh, he had that PR debacle in Florida that's ongoing over the school's bill and had a, you know, this uh, you know, a municipal district taken away from them. Uh, he had plenty of problems before that uh, internally, not popular, uh, moving a lot of employees to Florida, the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit last year, if you recall. So, so Chapek's had more than his share of struggles. Shares are way down. I mean, how long, though, do you think the board is going to put up with this? Well, uh, you know, his contract runs for another few months. Uh, I would say per certainly he's given the statement that they put out just yesterday. He's certainly safe this year. Uh, it's coming at a time where, you know, Netflix had those bad subscriber numbers. The whole media sector is down in a big way. So Disney isn't alone. You know, the theme parks, as we've talked about before, are really killing it. And that's been a savior. Uh, that was where Chapek sort of uh, last served. And, uh, and, and that business is doing great. So uh, it's a big test time. They're rolling out Disney Plus uh, in a number of new markets this summer all over the world. And, uh, and Chapek has promised that the second half of the year will show even stronger subscriber growth than the first half. So those data points are still to come. Has Bob Iger had at all 
still a role in the aftermath uh, of all of this? I mean, I know there's been some speculation of him coming back, which he has said is totally ridiculous. Just curious what Iger is up to. Uh, he hasn't publicly commented on Chapek's leadership, but people have uh, tried to read between the lines in some of his public statements. Um, uh, people have argued, for example, he tweeted out, a, a retweeted a, a, a statement from President Joe Biden on the Florida schools bill that sort of, in a way, made people ask what Disney's official position and set in motion that whole chain of events. Uh, he's also commented public on uh, on the decision, uh, saying it essentially was a no-brainer for Disney to uh, oppose the bill, uh, something that Chapek had initially been reluctant to do. So in a way, indirectly, he's offered his opinions on the way things are going on. Interesting. All right. Chris Palmieri, who covers Disney for us, will stay tuned for the next twist uh, in this very dramatic story. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. My colleague David Weston is coming up next with Wall Street Week. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers there. He's got some harsh words for the Fed, calling them delusional on inflation. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get our podcasts. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.